Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We clearly have the answer. I know it's Taylor Swift. Am I right? <laughs> Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, a Georgetown University law professor who teaches international law, national security, and constitutional law. Also with me is another FP columnist, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Finally, we have historian Robert Kagan, a best-selling author, columnist at the Washington Post, and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Welcome, guys, to another edition of uh, the ER podcast. Let's shift our focus a little bit from what we've talked about in past editions, which is U.S. leadership, whether it's the nature of U.S. leadership or it's the nature of U.S. leaders. And let's look outside our borders at the nature of other leaders. Let's talk about who's actually doing a good job. If we look back over the past eight years of the Obama years, who have been the really successful leaders who've gained the most for their country? Vladimir Putin. Well, okay. What you vote for Vladimir Putin? I vote for Vladimir Putin. Uh, I mean, he is—he is crazy like a fox. He has—you know—it could all come crashing down very easily on him. But so far, he has gambled and he's won repeatedly. You know, he's he's managed to expand Russian territory. He's managed to get away with, uh, you know, literal murder in the Ukraine and elsewhere. Uh, nobody, although we all sort of wring our hands and say, oh, my God, that's just so terrible. You shouldn't do that. Don't you know that that's not the way a civilized country is supposed to behave? Uh, by and large, he has successfully managed to do what he wants and ignore American desires when it comes to Syria, when it comes to Iran, when it comes to a great many other places. Uh, it's not a particularly appealing model, obviously. It's not, it's not a model that I would wish for any American leader or anyone else in the world, for that matter, to emulate. But I think that if you want to just, just look at it from the narrow frame of, you know, who has successfully gotten what he wanted— in the last eight years, Vladimir Putin's done a pretty good job. Well, let's 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 do this in an orderly way, which is atypical for us, even with our short track record. And let's go around, and each one of us will respond to the nominee each person has for most successful world leader of the past eight years. Corey, what do you think of Rosa's nomination of Vladimir Putin as that person? I think she's exactly right. I think he has played a very weak hand, extraordinarily adroitly. The Russian economy has been collapsing. The notion that Russia belongs among the BRICS is now ludicrous. Um, the drop in oil prices means that they're unsustainable into the future. And yet he has not only consolidated his domestic control 
his ugly invasion of Crimea has his public popularity in Russia hovering around 80%, which suggests to me we don't have a Vladimir Putin problem. We may have a Russia problem. So he has not only been successful in achieving his objectives internationally, despite having very few tools to do so, he has also consolidated his position domestically. It's very sad, but very effective. Bob, as they have spoken, I've seen you occasionally shake your head. I, I must say I feel like I, I think we're giving him way too much credit. And I also think we don't yet know what damage he's done to the country in, in, in pursuing these activities, particularly in Ukraine. First of all, Ukraine was not a clever little maneuver. Uh, he lost in Ukraine. He thought he had his boy in place with Yanukovych. Uh, Yanukovych then not only lost control but then fled the country and and Putin didn't really quite know what to do um, and and the truth is he's been he's been sort of you know uh, playing it as, as he sees it he makes a different move every day um, and the bottom line is yes what a great success he got something which I didn't think I would see uh, complete unanimity between the United States and European allies to impose very severe sanctions on Russia. You know, we we didn't do things like that even during the Cold War. We didn't have as much of a trading relationship, obviously. But you've had remarkable unity uh, in the West. That wasn't his goal. His goal was not to get um, an increase in the number of U.S. troops moving into the Baltics, and, uh, people now talking about restoring missile defense in Poland. Um, he has won maybe some short-term tactical victories, but I think in the long term he's probably done damage to Russia. And when we, when the Russian people start to feel that even more than they're feeling it now, we'll see. Um, and in Syria, let me tell you something. I think it's terrible that he's moved in to Syria. I think it's a, it, it is a failure of the Obama administration that we've left that vacuum. However, have fun uh, in Syria. Uh, he wants to get uh, bogged down in that particular fight. Um, he's beginning to stretch uh, military resources that he does not really have uh, somewhat thin. Um, I hate that we always want to say, you know, hit, hit, wow, Hitler had the best year. Uh, you know, he got uh, he got uh, the Rhineland back. But, well, you know, I, we're, always, we're always inclined to love our dictatorial enemies and think they're doing a great job. I think that he's probably gotten himself into more trouble. Well, let me provide a couple of counterarguments to some of the things that you said. First of all, in Syria, I don't think he's gone into Syria to take over parts of Syria, and I don't think he's gone in to prop up Assad. There is a very reasonable— That's exactly what he's gone in to do. He's even stated that that's what he's doing. No, I think ultimately the end game is that he's gone in there to have leverage to discuss the successor to Assad, because ultimately Assad will go in a deal, and Russia and Iran will have a veto on who goes into that deal, and he wants to have more leverage in that context. That's just pure speculation. It's not just pure speculation. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Really, your sources in the Kremlin are better than mine. Impure speculation. <laughs> no, but it's speculation based on conversations with people in both of those governments and in our own government that suggests that the next big move for John Kerry is going to be Syria. I'm and, sure that's and, the next big move for John Kerry, but well, that doesn't mean that could, that's what Putin's got in mind. Uh, well, 
I, I understand, but you can let me finish what I'm saying. And I said, if the next big move for John Kerry is Syria, and that he's going to seek a political deal, and the political deal can't involve Assad staying on, and so Assad is going to go and get asylum someplace else, and he is going to get immunity from the global community because that is the only way to get him to go. And the Russians and the Iranians will agree to that the deal as a successor. And I've heard Russians and I've heard Iranians both say that they're not resolutely opposed to the departure of Assad. They just want to make sure that their interests in the country are, are represented in the long term. But wouldn't they also say that if Bob's argument was true? They might. I, look, I'm just saying what I've heard, okay? You know, you know, this. I, I'm just saying there is a strategy behind it. We have to see how the strategy plays out. You can say the same thing with regard to Ukraine. I, he went into Ukraine, and did he get his guy in charge of Ukraine? No. Did he get Crimea? Yes. Does he have a part of the country where he essentially has a veto over the behavior of the government in Kiev in terms of what goes on in that part of the country because of military occupation? Yes. Did that military occupation produce any material pushback from the EU and the United States? I would argue no. You would say there were important sanctions, but the purpose of sanctions is to change behavior, and these sanctions did not change well, and Russian I think that behavior. There are two different questions embedded in your original question, David, of, of which world leader do we think has been most successful. I, I, there is success defined as done the most long-term good for their country, and then there is success defined as gotten what they want as an individual. Uh, and I think Putin has gotten what he wants as an individual. Um, by and large, I completely agree with you that in the long run, this is going to be catastrophic for Russia. But just, but, a, just a tiny. I'm going to I'm going to come back. But I mean, just on this tiny point, what he what he wants in his whole game is to actually be able to control the government in Kiev. That is not the trajectory that Kiev is on right now. They've just had a major breakthrough on the financial side by getting the deal that they got with their debtors, which leaves Russia, Russia isolated. If Ukraine is able to get its economic act together, it is going to be anchored in the West, anchored in Europe, and that is a loss for Putin, no matter how much he does in the 5% of the country that he is able to have influence in. Unless he gets an 80% approval rating, strength mm -hmm. at home, and is perceived as being a bigger player overseas, and the incoming chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, when he was doing his... Uh, confirmation hearing pointed to Russia as a principal rival of the United States. That's perhaps bad news the for, for Russia. That's not success. I don't. I think if you're coming from bad Vladimir, news for Russia, not so bad news for Vladimir Putin. Right. And I, I don't think, think if Vladimir Putin. Okay. Cares about okay. Then let's admit that we've redefined what it means to be a successful world ruler. It means you are successful yes. for yourself, <laughs> not for your no, country. No. No. I think it. No. Could, that's it, what you're saying. No. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you have taken your country from perceived irrelevance and being the loser in the Cold War to being perceived as a relevant global power again, you might be able to persuade your viewers, that your, your, your constituents, that you'd made progress there. Russia I, is never irrelevant. I think, I think that, I mean, David, you're essentially saying that being a spoiler can be very effective, that if you, if you can't have positive influence but you can be a spoiler, you can often still get what you want, which is clearly true. Um, but but I think that there's there's something more than that 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 Putin has been very clever in terms of how he has rhetorically exploited American mistakes and and he is 
managing to some extent, at least, to sort of articulate an alternative to sort of the U.S. vision of the world that is attracting some adherence, you know, and, and he's uh, one of my favorite examples. You know, he is uh, very, very good at taking the language of international law and turning it to his advantage and exploiting any sign of weakness or hypocrisy on the United States part. One of my favorite examples of this is, uh, you know, back back a few years ago when Kosovo unilaterally declared independence from Serbia uh, and the U.S. and the European Union were very, very quick to recognize Kosovo independence despite having previously made all sorts of promises, including in U.N. resolutions, the Security Council, that we weren't going to do that, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to respect Serbian sovereignty. And Putin, at the time uh, that the U.S. recognized Kosovo independence, made a speech in which he said something more or less word for word like this. He said, by recognizing, you know, Kosovo independence, uh, the United States is uh, 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 turning, uh, upturning hundreds of years of international legal principles about sovereignty, and they need to understand that this is a two-sided stick, and the other side will come back and hit them in the face. And then, of course, with the Ukraine and Crimea, that, that other side of that stick did come back and hit us in the face. And I think that, you know, he's he's got his admirers, not just in Russia, partly because there are enough people who don't like the U.S.'s perceived arrogance and so forth. I think that's very, very dangerous. I mean, the alternative he represents is a horrible alternative. But well, but but it's a horrible alternative. But let's, let's you know, again, I, we haven't sort of set a criteria for this, but the criteria to me is the world leader who has done the most to raise the profile, the influence of their country in the world over the course of the, that period of time. And, I have a nominee. Okay, and I'm going to come to you for your nominee in a second, but I want to finish one last thing on the Putin thing because, Bob, your point is, which is, is this is going to play out. We're going to have to see what this means for Russia in the long term, uh, is absolutely correct. Another place where Putin has been rather canny, where I think he's going to reap a significant victory, is in his courtship of nationalist and right-wing parties in Europe. Because as refugees stream into Europe, those parties are going to gain influence. And as those parties gain influence, it will weaken the EU, and it will weaken the ability of the EU to look outside its borders and be a counterbalance to him. And this has been a very canny long-term strategy on his part, and I think it may bear fruit. Anyway, we'll come back to the end of this, and we'll resolve this for everybody who's listening, and we'll come to a final decision <laughs> over who is actually the and best the winner. The, will and the winner, and they will receive a, a lifetime supply of podcasts from foreign policy. <laughs> um, to, to Russia with love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Corey, your nominee. My nominee is the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Um, because if I had been asked to bet money in 2008 whether Europe could actually stay ahead of markets on holding the euro together, um, I would never have bet $20 that the euro would still be standing at this point in time. And I don't believe she, and she also gets a degree of difficulty bonus because of Germany's fear of stepping forward and being a leader, even on the economic issues in Europe and beyond. I think she's been good on Russia. I think she's been good on Ukraine. I think she... I do not believe the EU sanctions against Russia could have come together without uh, German leadership. And most importantly, 
German domestic leadership on this issue. You know, that she sent uh, Steinmeier to talk to the Federation of German Businesses to make the case that uh, Germany has no future in business in Russia without the rule of law in Russia, and that's why we're doing this, was, I thought, a genius moment. I think, uh, so on the Greek financial crisis, I think she's been great. Obviously, don't live in Greece. Germany <laughs> to be well, not great. She held it together, right? She she went slowly enough that she could bring voters along, and fast enough to stay ahead of markets. And that's a degree of difficulty, very difficult to pull off. In fact, I'm not sure anybody else in Europe did it. Um, she has stood up to the Russians and defended a values-based European order. On migration, I'm tempted to say I thought until a week ago it would be Merkel, because I, I think while her, the position she has taken on migrants and her willingness to push back on the German right, the increasingly ugly German right, has been incredibly noble, I am not sure she actually thought her way through what this tidal wave of migrants coming is going to mean in the long term, not just for Germany, but for all of Europe. Bob, Merkel. Yeah, if I were, if I didn't have the actual obvious answer to this question, I would say Merkel. Um, <laughs> because, uh, oh my God, well, we're here flailing, as but soon you as I, know. As soon as, I, <laughs> as soon as I tell you who it is, you're all going to just say, oh yeah, that's right, I forgot about that. But um, uh, in the case of Merkel, I think she has been a very effective leader in a very difficult situation. You know, Germany has is been thrust into a role it hates, which is uh, European leadership. Uh, Germany has liked to keep its uh, profile low. It gets they're afraid of their own power. Uh, it's very difficult for them to do. We have by default allowed them uh, to have to take the lead role in some respects on areas where they might not have wanted to. I think if you know, I think the only uh, criticism I would say is I'm not sure that this German austerity is in fact the right uh, uh, proposal for. Uh, for Europe, and not especially if you do happen to live in Greece, um, and we'll see whether, in fact, uh, this works out. But but sure, on on all, all things being considered, and you know, she's um, she's very tall for a very short continent because the fact is the rest of the leaders in the in the, in Europe right now, from Britain all the way through, are are so poor that she really does stand out. Um, but uh, but so sure, she's definitely my second candidate. <laughs> And oh, she could be my second candidate too. <laughs> but I want to know who Bob. Well, we'll we'll get Trump we'll get we'll get to Bob's is. candidate in a second. But I, I you know I think one of the metrics that makes Merkel a legitimate contender for all of this is the relative stance of Germany in the world. And I think if you looked eight years ago versus oh, absolutely. today, absolutely. you have to say because of what happened in Ukraine, because of the financial crisis, because of the behavior of the other countries in Europe, uh, and the lack of leadership from a lot of those other countries. Uh, and frankly, because of the lack of leadership from the United States on a number of issues, Merkel has stepped up relative to other countries. And it didn't didn't hurt her in Europe that the U.S. was busy eavesdropping on her conversations and so on. I think it, it enabled her to do something that, that was actually quite helpful with European publics, both in Germany and outside of Germany, which was show a little bit of, of distance between Germany and the United States and be able to say, you know, we are not with you on everything uh, and, you know, do not assume automatically that we're going to 
go along with what you want. Right. And I think it's quite a remarkable thing that today, and you wouldn't have said this five years ago, you wouldn't have even accepted it as a possibility five years ago, the most important U.S. ally in Europe is not the United Kingdom anymore, which is fallen off. I mean, you talk about a leadership that has gone in the wrong direction over the past eight years. They have fallen off. Um, it's Germany. And, Fr and France is a, a second. You know, France has really stepped up and done some things. That, and Italy is third. Uh, and, 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 right. And, and, Luxembourg and, is fourth. I'm sorry. And Poland is up there. <laughs> and, and well, and Poland is up there. And interesting. And if you're when you're listening to this in the UK, you know, you you're, you are certainly behind Luxembourg in the view of the people in this room. So, you know, you're heading in the wrong direction. And I was talking to a British journalist yesterday who said, um, that the the only good leadership in politically in the UK right now is Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish National Party, and that that you know she let, believed that that might well lead to Scotland breaking mm -hmm. off and and the UK tra downward trajectory continuing. But I'm just building up for dramatic effect because Bob, you clearly have the answer. I know it's Taylor Swift. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I really think the person who has done the most, had the most success without really any negatives to speak of is the Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, this deal is uh, terrific for him in every, almost every conceivable respect. And that's not, to, that's not even to judge the deal from the American perspective. But look, he went from being a, a you know, theoretical nuclear outlaw to having had his nuclear program effectively blessed. He will be allowed uh, to pursue things after 10 years that we would never have allowed him to pursue before. They are going to get out from under crippling sanctions. They made it through. They survived the sanctions. They're going to get $100 billion uh, immediately. As you have said earlier in the conversation, they are playing a strong hand in Syria. Uh, their uh, their basic position in the region is, is strengthening. They are the direct beneficiaries of America's uh, sort of gradual sort of stepping back from the region. Uh, I have a, and and if you want to measure it in the Putin terms, he's solidly in control. I think, especially now with this deal, he's going to be very popular in that country even more than he might have been before. So I I, I don't know who else even comes close. Corey, is Bob right? I'm not ready to give up on either Putin or Merkel as having... Maybe we need to have different categories of winners. He does make a good case. I think, though, that to a greater extent than other leaders, the, the case for Ayatollah Khamenei depends on our choices rather than their choices, right? The power vacuum in the Middle East that expanded Iran's regional influence the nuclear deal that we made that I agree with Bob's judgment on, the weakness of the Iraqi government and incapacities there, the civil war in Syria. Um, I'm, I'm not sure this had to do that much with good work uh, to advance the nation by the Ayatollah than things that dropped in his lap. Oh, let me just let me just push back on that for one second, because going for this deal was not an easy thing for him to do. I mean, making a deal with the great Satan has always been considered one of the most threatening things uh, an Iranian revolutionary leader can do. He had to make the decision to allow us to give him this wonderful deal, uh, which which was not as easy as we might think. So you, it's not simply things didn't fall into place for him. Well, he had to he make had this decision. The, he 
he had the elected president who is uh, who counts as a reformer in the Iranian spectrum, uh, by which I mean to say not a reformer. Um, but he had a fall guy if this didn't work out. So even smarter. Can I can I nominate uh, another uh, well, dark horse I'm, candidate? Well, no, in first a you have to evaluate Bob's uh, choice. You have to I don't evaluate. Want to evaluate committee. I want to just agree with you both. You, <laughs> how do you do that? I'm a consensus builder. Well, wait a second. He says Hamani. <laughs> And Corey says, well, sort of Khomeini and sort of Merkel. Well, we're going to have best woman world leader in Europe. We're going to have best asshole in Russia. We're going to have best religious fanatic leader in Iran. Democratic stance. Let's let's fracture everyone into Michael. And they all get a gold medal, goddammit. They all get a gold medal. Oh, my Um, God. This is really... This is this is somebody who's got a lot of exposure to the American school system at the moment. <laughs> everybody's getting everybody, a star. Everybody's a winner. Uh, uh, okay, let's so hear it. Okay, so but this is actually in the spirit of both Putin and Khomeini. Uh, and I, I I thought of saying this initially, but then I, I ruled it out because I was assuming you know heads of formerly recognized states. Uh, if we're permitted to add in uh, self-proclaimed states, I would say that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, has also been uh, a winner in this, it, from this perspective of uh, both self-aggrandizement and, and <coughs> success of his organization. You know, this is, ISIS is an organization that went from relative obscurity a little over a year ago. Most Americans had never heard of it uh, and has managed to not only seize and retain a good deal of territory and a whole lot of money and stuff, including a lot of U.S. uh, provided military equipment, um, but has managed to uh, create franchises or provinces, as they call them, in numerous other countries. Uh, and to dramatically change the agenda of the United States. And beat his nearest competitor, Al-Qaeda. Absolutely. I mean, it's quite astonishing when you look at the spread of ISIS and its influence in in the, the imaginations. Again, this is very much for worse, but the imaginations of... Sadly, many young Muslims around the world and some non-Muslims who have nonetheless found it romantic and interesting and so forth, uh, it's quite it's quite an amazing success story. Now, it may not last, right? We hope it doesn't last, but but I think that uh, you know we we the United States, we the world still have a lot of work to do to try hard harder to understand how it was possible that ISIS has been so successful so quickly and so difficult for us to combat. Well, look, first of all, all states are self-proclaimed states at some point or another. So let's, you know, stipulate you can throw them in there. Uh, and I would say, you know, part of the reason the success story of, of al-Baghdadi is so notable is not because he's attracted so many people, but that he's actually attracted so few. He's got an operation that's roughly the size of a small community college somewhere in the Midwest that's reordered, you know, United States priorities in the region and 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 managed to capture a lot of attention. And so I think al-Baghdadi and I think Putin and I think Merkel and I think Khamenei are all good nominees. But before we sort of close <laughs> the balloting here, let's let's let me throw out three or four others who are potential and then we can all go around and we and can then we determine. can ask our listeners to vote. Yes, right. And if, they if, will get a lifetime supply of FP podcast if they if they predict the winner directly. Right. Right. Which is to say 
Bob's 19-year-old daughter will get to pick. But, um, <laughs> but, but, um, but, uh, My 13-year-old is uh, going to go for Taylor Swift. Yeah, uh, for sure. yeah. That's, that's well, an easy one. Taylor Swift is a potential winner. So is Mark Zuckerberg, probably, by some metrics, uh, over the course of the past eight years, because he's now one of the few people running something that can be measured in a billion people. And, you know, that's the Pope is one of those, and the leaders of the Muslim world, China and India, that's the others. So, you know, it's a pretty rare, rare company. But let's just let me throw out three or others that you, you might want to consider for this before we, you know, take a next step. One that seems obvious to me is Xi Jinping, not because China is in particularly good economic shape at the moment, but because where China is today relative to where China was eight years ago is dramatically different. They are clearly been in power for eight years. Okay, and the Chinese leadership. Uh, the, mm, the, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> well, uh, no, well, but he Categories has... Categories are shifting. Then oh. in that case, the United States is doing great because uh, oh. we're in best... It must be Barack Obama. I mean, come on. you gotta, okay. you got to pick somebody okay. while he's I will, been in I'll, office. I will, well, I will take it during the term of his office then that what he has managed to do is take the leadership of a country and move it up into clear number two position in the world uh, be seen as a power in the Middle East in a way that has not been seen as a power in the Middle East before, um, by being central to the Iran deal, by now being, uh, you know, party to the discussion in Afghanistan between the U.S. and the Taliban, uh, through the One Belt, One Road policy, developing connections throughout the region, uh, and uh, extending his power out into the South China Sea without actually being rebuffed in any material way, uh, uh, and managing a financial crisis thus far in some terrible ways that turned out okay for them, which is a real Chinese trick. But so I think you have to consider Xi Jinping. I think another person you have to consider, and he's only been in power relatively short period of time, is Modi, who's had a very good tenure in terms of uh, India's performance and, and India's strategic positioning in the world. And I think another one who you might want to consider, because he's another person who's taken a country that was essentially kind of irrelevant and brought it back into a greater degree of relevance, is Abe in Japan, uh, where he has shifted their position, given them a vital role in the balancing of China, moved forward this idea of the normalization of the Japanese military, and so forth. I'm just throwing them out there so that we are seem to have considered all right. possibilities. I would like to rebut all those possibilities, please. Okay. I think Xi has demonstrated that even though his power is more pervasive than previous Chinese leaders, uh, his ability, he is making China more brittle. And I think he telegraphed that through the, through the bad handling of the economic crisis. Modi and Abe are underperforming compared to what they claimed in terms of reform and repositioning. So I don't think any of the three of them come anywhere near the level of others mentioned. Is there anybody else that we would like to consider here? Well, I mean, look, if we're if if you can put Abe and Modi with very incomplete records and it's not clear just tossing them out there. And just... if you can if you can put Xi Jinping who is currently uh, to me presiding very poorly over this financial crisis, you know, we start using the security services to make sure that people aren't talking about stocks. You've got a you're uh, you're in a very interesting area it seems to me. Then you might as well add Barack Obama. 
Um, the economy, ha- when he took office, the, the economy was completely in the doldrums, and we are, you know, we have a moderate recovery. He has a he has a signature piece of legislation, whether you like it or you don't like it, which is going to go down in history. Um, there are people who think he just struck a brilliant deal uh, with Iran. Um, you may say, well, America's position has uh, pulled back in the world. That's what he wanted to do. So he has successfully pulled America's position back in the world. I don't think his record, uh, if you if you want to, as I say, if you want to throw those other guys into the mix, why not throw Barack Obama into the mix? Okay, you can stand by that. I think, <laughs> uh, you know, the notion that Barack I know o- that's not your feeling, uh, There's Brooke, the headline, David. I, uh, <laughs> Bob Kagan says Obama, world's most transformative leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that is that is a headline. Um, all right. Uh, well, as 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 we wrap it up here, Corey, you've heard a number of choices. You can stick with your own, or you can shift. I vote for Rosa's choice. Rosa picked Woo-hoo! everybody. Wait, what was Rosa's choice? Well, Ro- my original choice was Rosa was Rosa's I, choice was oh, all Bogdani. of the above. Then I started giving everybody gold stars. No, but yeah, you. So but was your choice before Rosa <laughs> went all Democratic on us? <laughs> yeah. uh, she said Putin. Achieve oh. the most, and I agree with that. Okay, Rosa, do you want to? Now that Corey agrees with you, do you want to repudiate your choice? With me, if Corey agrees with me, I'm going to agree with me too. <laughs> okay, well, there's two votes for Putin here. Well, Bob. obviously, I'm sticking with the Ayatollah Khamenei. I think, in terms of relative gain in global influence, it's unquestionably the Ayatollah Khamenei. Oh my God! We've got a split decision. We've got a split decision around along gender lines. But the reason I think it is is that if you look at where Iran was eight years ago, it was squeezed, it was limited, it had significant rivals in the region, it was counterbalanced by the United States in a significant way. Uh, as you look at Iran today, uh, not only is it going to open up to the world, enjoy a flood of foreign investment, thus build more ties with the world, gain standing on the international stage. Every single one of its rivals has faltered in the course of the past eight years for one reason or another. They've gained influence in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, in Yemen. Uh, They maintain uh, uh, the ability to project force throughout the region informally uh, and with the resources they're getting, they're gaining the ability to do it uh, in other means. I think it's very close between Khamenei and Putin. I think that these are the two people who are the big there winners. A, there is a large point here, though, of course. I mean, this is if, if this had been 1985, we would have said Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Helmut Kohl, and probably the Japanese leader. And now, the bad guys are winning. And, and now we are, are saying, winning. boy, it's a tough one between Putin, al-Baghdadi, and Ayatollah Khamenei. Exactly. What else do you need to say? Which is why... <laughs> it's not Barack Obama. <laughs> it's why the most ludicrous nomination of the day is Barack Obama, okay. um, who has created the conditions that pushed to the top of the list. Just trying to keep the conversation lively. The 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 these these bad bad guys. Well, the conversation has been lively. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I'm sure we've answered David, some can big I just questions. Ask you an important question. 
Yes, I, you I've might. I've noticed that the name of our podcast is the ER. Does yes. that mean emergency room? Yes. Does that imply that you think that we are in a permanent state of emergency, as indeed our last bit of conversation might tend to indicate? It means that we are triaging the world's problems. Oh, I see. <laughs> see, <what> I'm <laughs> see. We're not solving them, though. No, we're, we're just shipping them off we're, to some other department. We're just, for... right. We're doing what foreign policy analysts do, which is we're recategorizing things. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, you know, and then moving on to the next question. Um, anyway, thank you, guys. It's been great, and I look forward to doing this the next time. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. I'm sorry I wasn't there in person. I won't make a habit of it. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us. Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a roaring 20s murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games.